Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're crossing over to Oakland, California to catch up with Tracy Benson, female entrepreneur and former athlete, and now the CEO of a company called Obsesh, which uh, is a marketplace for athletes, and we're going to go deep into what that, of course, means. Uh, we're going to have a great look at uh, Tracy's illustrious corporate career. And of course, before being a pro athlete, and I'm sure all of those things is how it came together and what she's doing now. So welcome to the podcast, Tracy. Thanks a lot, Marcus. I'm so happy to be here from all the way across the pond in the West Coast Absolutely. of the U.S. Yeah, we're, we're 12 hours apart here. And uh, it's always good okay. to have my morning and your, your later evening there uh, or earlier Thanks, evening. Sir. So, Tracy, tell us a bit about your early part of, you know, how it all started, a little bit of what you did in college. And, of course, you were a pro athlete in the in the game of volleyball. So uh, talk about it, and then we'll go along the lines of uh, all the fun things you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I'll just start a little bit backwards. Um, started out, you know, as a chief marketing officer for the last, oh, I don't know, dozen years really got to dip my hands into building brands and building iconic brands and products in the consumer space. But, you know, I go all the way back into uh, some of the things you'll peel back later. Had a few years in the agency business with the advertising world to really understand and learn marketing, understand advertising and all the great, you know, tools and tactics of today's media mix. And prior to that, I was what, what I call stacking it high and watching it fly, I was building uh, one of the most iconic uh, growth brands called the Home Depot. Unfortunately, you don't have that, uh, but it's pretty popular here in the U.S. And prior to that, I was uh, playing a couple years on the Pro Beach uh, volleyball circuit, which was very early days. It used to be called the Women's Professional Volleyball Association. Now it's called the AVP. And... Grew up in Chicago, went to college, got a nice little degree in marketing and finance and an MBA, and here we are today, and I'm doing, you know, the best thing for athletes worldwide, which is the CEO and co-founder of Obsesh, a digital sports platform. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's go in exactly. We're going to go deep into some of those parts of, of your career. And uh, so you, you were at the Western Illinois University and you were an NCAA volleyball player, right? Uh, I guess you uh, were, let's call it a ath student athlete. Um, yes. Which, again, has obviously dramatically changed uh, now with uh, new rules, et cetera, how athletes are, you know, even students, athletes are now able to start monetizing, I guess, there. You know, just before we into, you know, getting all the other stuff, what's your thought on that as a former student athlete? Oh, I couldn't be happier. I mean, I don't think there's a student athlete anywhere of any year and any time, particularly in the U.S., that wasn't waiting for this day to come about. It. You know, it was a rule and a regulation that was set about, oh, gosh, 50 years ago. Right. Think about 50 years ago, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and here we are today in a world of the digital era, a world of personalities everywhere, you know, professional athletes and everybody's just building their brand and their personality and able to monetize themselves in all kinds of new ways. And college athletes still couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. That that just... I'm such a big fan. It is 
such an honor to be a part of this change in this era and supporting what we call amateur athletes and NIL name image likeness through of such platform. So I'm so psyched every day is like a new day in the wild west, but it's a wonderful day for every student athlete there is. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And then I've, I keep asking that different folks, uh, especially obviously from the U.S. And, and the answers are a bit varied. Um, I had someone who, who <laughs> was bet. a bit more on the administration side, you know, worked on sort of um, as a athletic director at a uni at various universities. And he had, he had a slightly different point. So, but, you know, I don't want to debate that now. That's less the point of this podcast. But uh, it's just, you know, yeah. interesting to see, I guess, the difference. So you also have an MBA from uh, Notre Dame. And uh, and then, like you said earlier already, you, you played a, a few years of pro uh, um, beach volleyball. Uh, it was mm -hmm. beach volleyball, correct? If I got it correctly? It, it was. It right. was. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's yeah. just talk about it because, you know, that's four or five years of your life there. Um, you know, tell us a bit about those early days because we're talking and maybe gives a little bit away your age here. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're talking uh, here. That's okay. 1987. There's something about wisdom in life. Exactly. Right. Well, 87 through about 92, yeah. 93. I tried to play a little bit after that, but I got to be honest, you know. Good bathing suits and a six-pack uh, ab doesn't pay the bills. So right. eventually that career came to an end. But yeah, as I said, I mean, this is, you know, now let's call it uh, three decades ago. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, and again, so I'd always love those stories a bit about, you know, go into it a bit about, you know, what was it like at that time? It's all nice and good. What is the that, that Pro 2 now? And the AVP is, you know, it's really well known. But, uh, you know, how was it 30 years ago when you started? Yeah, you know, I'm assuming it was, uh, you know, very different. So just to share a little bit with us. Yeah. In some ways, it was really, uh, you know, interesting. But you only know the times that you live in in that point in your career, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not until now when you see how the AVP is picking up momentum, uh, but still, quite frankly, struggles with many of the same things that were happening 20, 25, 30 years ago. Right. And so, you know, coming out of college, actually, let me kind of go back a little bit. Going into college, that's all you dreamed of was playing in college. Right. And to be able to have a full ride scholarship to pay for my, you know, room and board and my books and to be able to have that was mm incredibly powerful uh on a lot of levels one it was a dream come true to actually go to college and play right. uh to be a starter right out of the gate in college whereas you know many athletes go into college and they sit for a year or two and right you know uh so i could play right away and you know the fact that i could like live my dream every day it just fueled more momentum for me when I got out of college as I could see the end coming near. The only thing I could think about was I want to be that athlete that's just continuing on and becoming a professional and I can make money at it and I can keep going and keep going and life is going to be great. Um, and, you know, I did that. I got out of college. I bolted right down to Miami, you know, put my feet in the sand, started playing, and I was an indoor player my whole life. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a tough transition, but 
what indoor player doesn't dream of putting on a great bathing suit and playing on the beach all day? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, uh, you don't mean that sarcastically. You mean that is true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, right. Exactly. Especially if you grow up in, uh, you know, Chicago, which is, uh, it's like, you know, my parents are Swedish, so Chicago is like Sweden on a cold day, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so who doesn't dream of going to the beach? So I head right down to Miami, uh, playing on the beach, got a great partner, you know, we're working hard. We're training all day, every day. We're Hmm. doing all the things that you did in college. You're very programmed as an athlete, especially an athlete that's competing, the higher your level, the more programmed and the more training and rest and hydration, all the things that you get into routines. The only thing was, you know, we could win a tournament and we're winning a case of Pepsi. Okay. Well, that, okay. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like hear that loud, right? You're winning a case of Pepsi. You have a sponsor, like at the time it was Mosimo, um, which then became a pretty mass brand, but it started out as a very beach kind of surf brand. Hmm. But, you know, the same thing that happened 25, 30 years ago is happening today. If you're a niche athlete and you're not playing in the Premier League, you're not playing, you know, MLB in the U.S. or NBA or NFL, especially as a woman and a woman in a niche sport, Hmm. you can't pay your bills. And so, the kind of cool thing about all athletes that still exist today is you learn how to game the system. And what I mean by that is you can live for a week on like three meals and a box of cereal. You can, you know, find your way when you get injured to, uh, most athletes have a high tolerance of pain. They'll work through it. You learn to game your own life so that you can basically live on like $10 a month. But the fact is like, you still got to pay rent. Mm. You still need to build a future and a financial future. And so while it was a ton of fun, I can remember calling home to my parents several times. I was living with like three, four, five roommates at different times. It didn't even matter. But because I was playing and I can remember calling home, Hey dad, can I borrow $200 for rent? You know? And my dad would say, are you really borrowing it, Tracy? (laughs) Sure. Definitely. Right. You know, put it in an envelope, send it down, you know, to Miami. There was no like wiring money to anybody or Venmo or whatever you want to say, you know, swish. And, um, and so I did that numerous times over several years. And then I started like getting part-time jobs, working at Chili's, you know, bar and grill at night, or I can remember in college, (laughs) we'll get to this later about NIL, but in college I was like, don't tell anybody now because maybe they'll take away some sort of like honor I had, but I was working at a cattle auction for cash to make cash on the side because you weren't allowed to work. And so that, that, you know, we were so used to it, played, had a great time. But eventually, you know, my dad told me, you've got two more phone calls, use them wisely. (laughs) I thought he was kind of kidding. But after the second phone call, he wasn't kidding. And that was kind of a forced moment for me to say, I can't keep doing this. I've got to get a job. And that's 
sometimes that's the hardest thing for any athlete to move across that mental hurdle of mm. go from playing, you know, cause competing is a full-time career. It's just like you couldn't get paid for it. Right. But the cost of training, the cost of your body, your time, the competitions and, and, you know, eventually that second phone call came to an end, got that other $200. And then it was time, as my father would say, now it's time to use your academic scholarship and get a job. (laughs) So that launched me into my, you know, my real first job, which was Home Depot. Yeah. Uh, great. I think it was a great start to the to the story, and it, it will definitely loop, obviously, back into exactly what you're doing now. Uh, we'll should get yeah. to it back later in uh, with with Obsesh. So uh, uh, it's uh, I think you know you've you've felt the pain, and I think that's um, that's pretty clear what you're building now is is, uh, is all sort of full circle here. So, but let's spend a little bit of time on on you know your your corporate career then um, over the next several sure. decades, uh, because again, I'm certain there are stories in there which sort of builds up to what you're doing now and how you learned you yep. know how to build brands and, and build platforms and, and all this fun mm-hmm. stuff which is really yes. what you did I guess right and so uh, yep. you know, just just you know pick a couple of stories of your early part of your career there you know you were with Home Depot you got where mm. Jack Morton uh, you know where was uh, yeah. Razorfish yeah. etc all you know all interesting brands and certainly there are stories out there right absolutely I, you know that's a great question nobody's ever asked me that I'm gonna start with my uh with uh, the Home Depot. So it was a time when Home Depot, and hopefully your audience and your viewers have at least heard of the Home Depot. If not, they've heard of the gentleman by the name of Arthur Blank. And Arthur Blank was one of the co-founders and he's the owner of the Atlanta Falcons. um, uh, Huge in the community for women and women's sports and was a big, you know, influence behind our recent election down in Atlanta, which was a, uh, Georgia was a very big key stay force. So uh, let me start with the story from the Home Depot. I learned so much from Arthur Blank. I took my athletics from my rigor, my routines that I just had as an athlete. And here's a guy that said, listen, I just want you to commit five, six years to me. You're going to build the shit out of this company. And my first question was, well, what is the Home Depot? <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. I, did, I didn't own a place. I couldn't pay my rent. Uh, I've never built cabinets or done anything like that for anybody. And he was just a remarkable leader. And I remember we just built this amazing culture. Like every day you'd come in and envision this, Marcus. Mm-hmm. I'd be dropped into a blank slate of a store that didn't look like a store me and five guys we did this for six six years hundreds of them Mm -hmm. we'd come into this palette a blank palette and you're like okay i'm gonna build this market i'm gonna build this store i'm gonna hire all these people i'm gonna help these people bleed orange as they say Mm -hmm. right because home depot is all about the orange and the orange aprons and what was so remarkable what i learned from that company Um, was you can actually accomplish anything you put your mind to because on a daily basis, I was challenged to build a store, build a market, hire hundreds of people, interview thousands of people, run operations, build a receiving department with some of the world's biggest 
companies coming in the door left and right and mm -hmm. tackle problems day in and day out. And the one thing I learned was how to really take my love of being a captain on the court and leading in a, you know, volleyball indoors, typically a six person, on, you know, on the court, right. but you maybe have 12 people on the team. I was always that captain, always that leader, but now okay. I was like, cap. I was the captain of hundreds of people every day and you'd start one store and there would be the five of us. And then a week later, cause we did this in 12 weeks, hmm. every store, there'd be 10 people, then there'd be 20 people, then there'd be 40, then there'd be 80, then there'd be 120, then there'd be 200. And every day we'd get to the front of the store and you could turn around and something was different. The racks were up, the merchandise was in, the forklifts were out, the cash registers were getting installed, the garden hoses were like, you know, all over the lumbers flying in. Right. And every morning we brought everybody together at the beginning of the store at the front and we just like rallied people to the mm. point where people were just screaming and what oh, we right. call bleeding orange. Right. And that culture was so incredible because as you tackle problems all day, it's the strength and the trust of those people together mm. when you've been through these hard things so fast. It just that culture and that connection People really want that, whether it's the customers, the employees, us working together, us going through the hard problems. It was fascinating. So, Sounds you know, like it. Yeah. So you, it was called the hyper-growth team, right? So that that's what means a hyper-growth yeah, as in you know, yeah, setting yeah. up new venues or new, new locations, I guess, right? Yeah. So we would go into a market. We would open 10, 12 stores in a matter of, you know, seven months. Right. And we would just go one by one by one by one, you know, take your favorite 10 people to the next store from there, take 20 people to the next store. It really was, uh, you know, today they would call that scaling right. in technology. Back then, your platforms were literally these giant, massive, you know, 40, 60 thousand square foot stores and you're filling them just like you're filling your digital technologies you know right. fast and furious figuring it out yeah, well, it definitely sounds like some great learning there now that i picked one up here which was um, you were olympic work program creator I'm not sure exactly what that meant but uh yeah, it was good. it was uh, yeah. home depot a partner of the olympics <laughs> so talk, talk yeah tell me about so it. yeah so before the partnership with the olympics because the olympics weren't really at that time, bringing on big brand sponsorships, you know, mm -hmm. and the Home Depot was a relatively, uh, what I would say small as compared to now. Now they probably have a footprint of a thousand, a thousand, um, you know, stores. But at right. the time we were just building them dozens at a time. So it was in the hi real hyper growth. Well, you know, as I told you, I was an athlete that just couldn't, couldn't make it. So here I am with the Home Depot and I basically start hiring all my friends who were also Olympians. So one mm -hmm. in particular, Kent Ferguson, he was an Olympic diver and he and Greg Luganis uh, were the two, you know, mm -hmm. aspiring and, you know, hopefuls for the U.S. And Kent, you know, couldn't make any money either. And he was like, I, I can't pay my rent. And I knew that problem really well. And so right. Kent and I were really good friends living in Miami. And I said, Kent, just come work 
and set up stores with me. So he would come and I'd be like, listen, if you can give me four hours, give me four hours, you can make a lot of movement in four hours in one of these stores we're setting up. And then I would take another one and another one. And then, you know, finally I, I went to Arthur Blank and I said, he's like, what is it with all these like Olympians working here? And I said, well, they can't make money, Arthur. So we need help. We need talent. We need strong athletes, just like you hired me. Mm. We need to support these athletes. And we ended up creating uh, the program, which I led, of allowing Olympic athletes to work at the Home Depot part-time. And what was really revolutionary was uh, we fought to give them full-time benefits and full-time pay. That's pretty remarkable. You got a flexible job. And that turned into the Olympic work program Got it. at Home Depot where we codified it and now Olympians could come work there. And then that became the basis and the platform for why the heck wouldn't the Home Depot be taking credit for that and sponsoring the Olympics. And then I mm. hope that program is still going today. People mm. come to me all the time and they're like, Oh my God, thank you so much, you know, for, for that. Right. And these you know, even five, 10 years ago. And I'm like, for what? And they're like the Olympic work program. I'm like, oh, that's so awesome that you benefited from that. Mm, I love it. So I would say my whole career has been a little bit like that. I've always been fighting for athletes to be able to make a financial future because you got to be able to build some security. And uh, so that continued on through all of my, uh, you know, CMO roles and head of digital I was always sponsoring athletes, you know, paying for them to be quote unquote, you know, air quotes, influencers before that was a buzzword. Right, right. And yes, so let's let's talk about your next stop here, because from building shops now, let's call it that in the most simplest sense, you went into now a bit more the creative content uh, side of it, right? Uh, You you, were involved in sponsorship, et cetera, with Jack Morton. Yep. So again, was it just a natural way to go there or was that really more what you were really interested in or maybe what you studied uh, was sort of marketing and other things or how do you go from building, sh- you know, shops and stores and uh, for home people <laughs> to, to creating, you know, stories and uh, or, or, you know, cre- being more on the creative side of things? Yeah, that's a great question. No, it's definitely not a natural uh you know, expansion of my career after (laughs) I spent, after I spent all these years, uh, just moving all over the country and opening up, you know, to your point, shops, big shops, which kind of resonates with me now today, because I talked to athletes about setting up their own shop. So I'm, Mm. I'm over here having a big smile. Um, but that being said, what I really started to fall in love with, because again, as an athlete in college, and an athlete playing after college, you're not really worried about well, what am I going to do when I'm done playing? That's not even really a top consideration because you're okay. so focused. Okay. Right. So here I am, I'm with Home Depot by probably a little bit of luck. And I'm really starting to like love what I'm doing, but I can see the path of con- connecting consumers with products they love to solve problems. But I just felt like if I stayed at Home Depot doing what I've been doing, which is opening hundreds of stores and, you know, sort of building that format, 
I was going to miss out on really a strong point of view, especially when content really started taking hold and becoming important Mm -hmm. and advertising. I was going to miss out on the opportunity to really do what I would say is advertising right. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I can remember I, I literally knocked on a lot of doors, meaning advertising doors. Of course I'd call them and nobody would talk to me. Right. Like when was the last time you called anything and anybody talked to you, but I would call them and everybody would say, well, I'm sorry, you don't have any experience in advertising. And I'm like, no, but I've just built hundreds of Home Depot stores. I've seen and solved more consumer problems you ever will in your life, but I couldn't make it in. So I happen to just like a lot of things in life. And I hope your listeners hear this. I was just open to putting myself out there. And so Jack Morton was actually an agency that mm-hmm. said they were early in the experiential and creating, you know, what I would just say right now is real experiential, uh, you know, environments and activations. And they said, oh my gosh, well, I got, you know, we think we might be getting some Home Depot business. And since you just worked there, <laughs> I think you'd be great. You might know. And you know what I did? I just followed the path. And I looked for an in, I took that in, and I learned everything I could possibly about experiential marketing, which then basically gave me the platform to go into digital marketing. So with Razorfish, because digital was really starting to take hold. And I was experimenting with it at Jack Morton because I was leading all the retail accounts and the retail exhibitions and all the experiences. Okay, so we would, yeah, we would get in there with some digital doing some really cool things. Like I worked on the AT&T global network operations center. Like what kid from Chicago has been playing volleyball and working at the home Depot belongs in the network operations center, not me, but I got, you know, I got a good chance to go in there and I built out this really cool digital, you know, uh, experience that they bring their top global clients into and yeah. And Razorfish came along sense. and said, and that's, Come on you know, over. we're talking early 2000s. So, I mean, there's a sort of now yeah. internet boom anyway, right? We're talking <clears> the beginning the, of YouTube. Correct. Yep. Uh, all those sort exactly. of things starting to the, you know, the, the internet exactly. boom and bust a bit time, but, uh, yeah, it was digital yeah. is, you know, the word digital probably didn't quite exist yet. I think we still called it internet maybe at the time. Um, yeah, but yeah it's, yeah. it's starting yeah. to come, uh, yeah, it started to happen, sure. right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people forget it was only about 15 years ago that the iPhone really started to take hold with about 3% of, you know, us consumers and, you know, 17 or so years ago was YouTube. Um, as a matter of fact, Chad Hurley, who was the founder of YouTube and the CEO is an investor in obsession. Um, and yeah, it was, it was so cool, but I would definitely call that web one, right? Yes. Definitely. As we're approaching web three, yeah. uh, that was definitely web one. And But what I loved about web one was in a smaller environment, meaning there was less media, you know, less everything. Mm-hmm. There certainly wasn't social, you know, social media Correct. like Instagram, Facebook, right? So Correct. what you could really do was really experiment and you had kind of a big palette to do that. And it was great to learn the creative process, the importance of content, 
just the real backbones of how the internet technology content and commerce and communities come together and that's what i think i really took away from in particular razorfish because we were really uh just starting web one and really exploding things and then i went to best buy um you know shortly thereafter and was ahead of digital there and that really was the explosion of what i would say web two and so that just you know the fun there was the world's biggest consumer technology company again i'm living in a shop right (laughs) you can see some of the threads here yeah um but i think the big thing is I've always been a builder. I've always been innovating, but innovating where problems and solutions come together. And that's part of what I find, you know, the biggest challenge is there's always a solution to a problem. It's just, can you solve it? Can you find it? Is there a market for it? And what does that look like? And how do you, how do you build that path forward as, you know, because I've always been an entrepreneur inside every one of these businesses. I don't care if it was Home Depot. <laughs> you know, I'm building from ground up literally all day, every yeah, day. I saw you, know? you, you in Best so, Buy, you, you were talking about being the chief storyteller. So talk about, about what is yeah. the story you guys were telling about Best Buy and, you know, and how does yeah. that relate to now being storytellers? Of course, athletes, that's what you're trying to teach your athletes, right, to be a storyteller. Yeah. So that's a it's a – you know, storytelling, people relate to stories. There's an emotional connection. And the more digital we get, especially as I see, you know, I've been in the consumer space and studying consumer tech and consumer behaviors my whole career. Mm-hmm. The more digital we get, the more people want to connect and come together. And the way they do that is through stories. Mm-hmm. They do it through stories, you know, Instagram reels, or they do it through TikTok, or they do it, you know, web two was they were doing it through YouTube. You were hearing the stories of everybody and anybody. And at Best Buy, you know, you've got the world's screens that everybody is consuming and starting to like pick up. And what was really complicated in the very beginning of all this growth of technology was how to use it. Right. What does it do for me? Right. You can remember, I, I can point to hundreds of people. I would be given a keynote speech at like a big giant retail or a worldwide web, you know, conference mm-hmm. talking about this smartphone is going to be your best friend in your pocket. I mean, of me saying that you know, 15 years ago. And I can remember people saying, I know I don't need one of those. Well, like story we were trying to tell it at Best Buy was really about not technology for technology's sake, because I think what we learned in storytelling is nobody cares about features and specs, right? right? Nobody cares. What they care about is what's going to do for my life is going to make me feel something better different and it's kind of like a disney movie you know if they didn't tell you a story we'd all be bored for like two and a half hours Mm. and so we were trying to tell that story about not technology from a features and specs perspective which there was a big component there of years and years where every single one of our vendors 
the only thing they talked about were, was a better feature, a better mousetrap, a better spec. And so we were trying to say to everybody, it's not about that. It's about what it brings to your life. The fact that you can sit on this phone and be entertained by whatever, a word puzzle, a Pac-Man going across the screen, or the access to read a really emotional like email or text message from somebody that you love or you haven't talked to. And so that's storytelling. We tried to bring it forward in everything and anything and put it on every single screen so that people realized you're not buying specs and features. You're buying stories that connect you to other things in your life. Mm, love this. So, and, and you said earlier, you know, you were head of digital and then later on head of marketing, or that's at least the titles, I guess, you carried. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously on the back of it, you ended up working with, you know, also the other brands, right? From Beats to, oh, you know, Fitbit hundreds. and GoPros and Twitter yeah. and so on. And I guess that's, again, a, a huge learning there, I guess, how to, you know, maneuver that digital space um, and or so on these other brands, which are doing very cool stuff. So, and that somewhat led a bit, also, I guess, to the next job then with Monster. But, uh, you know, it's, let's talk a bit about it. What, what was the learning, um, again, in the digital marketing space, you know, working with, you know, sitting on the maybe Best Buy side and then, you know, working with these groups, you know, what was the big takeaway there during those times? And again, we're talking sort of 2008 to 12, right? So, you know. Um, yeah. So if you kind of go back to those, you know, like the 2009, um, it was still the iPod era, mm -hmm. right? You could put a Walkman in your pocket, so to speak. Yeah. And it was just really starting uh, we were really struggling at Best Buy, which was probably, I would think, I mean, I might not get this right, but I think we were probably selling more records than anybody in the world. Okay. Best Buy. Okay. So and that's that a lot of CDs, records. right? I'm assuming that wasn't real records anymore, oh, right? Oh, it was, oh, it was still LPs. Really? Yeah. It was yep. LP at the time. Okay. Uh, it was, you know... I mean, there's always a vintage crowd out there that loves those LPs, but it was CDs. Mm. It was, um, you know, the real threat was uh, streaming music. Right. Napster was a real threat when people yeah. could start ripping down, you know, peer to peer. Correct. So what did Best Buy do? We bought Napster. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Wow, yeah. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, so here you are, this era of – it's, you're starting to see the shift. You've got Web 1.0, which is, you know, YouTube has started and mm. everything was about dancing cats and broadcasting yourself, you know, right. and Facebook, you know, I would meet with them in those very, very early days. You know, Mark was a kid. He had like three or four people working for him wow. and they weren't, they were trying to find a business model, same as Twitter, trying to find a business model that they could start to monetize, right? Mm. Because they had these eyeballs. And so that whole era of like eyeballs were everything. Right. Um, and, you know, you've got this like great technology, all these vendors. And I think the real learning that I saw, I had this palette where I could influence many, many, many vendors Um you know, we were looking for them to drive footfall traffic into the stores. Nice. So we had to work really closely. And I think probably the biggest thing I learned there is um, early on, 
we, uh, myself and one of the other merchants, uh, part of our job was to break open categories where companies had a real lockup on market share. So take Bose at the time, Bose, yep. you know, in audio space, yep. Bose had the lockup on headphones. Like who, what pilot or dad wasn't wearing a silver headphone, you know what I mean, when they're sitting on the plane. Right. And so along comes, you know, Jimmy Iovine, uh, you know, notable, no doubt, Dr. Dre, who right. has a lot of shelf space of those CDs in Best Buy. Right. And these artists would come into campus all the time and sing and perform. And because that's where the sales were happening, right? It, right. it still wasn't the, you know, the Spotify and Correct. Apple ecosystem. And so I think one of the biggest learnings I had was. In particular with, uh, I would say with Jimmy and Dre, and at the time Beats was really a record label with Monster as a manufacturer. Okay. And they had this idea for a headphone. It was actually, they started out with speakers, but nobody thought that was a very good idea. And if Best Buy didn't think it was a good idea, you weren't gonna go anywhere with right. that idea because right. Best Buy has the influence. Right. And so I think the real, learning I saw was when we took some of these really small startup companies at the time beats was not even a company really yet. They didn't have a product. They didn't have a box. They didn't have a headphone. They had colored pictures literally on a piece of paper mm. and to really go deep in content and culture, mm. nobody is more connected in culture than Jimmy Iovine. Um, he is just like, he is the guru of connecting culture to youth. Right. Um, it, he's almost magical about it. it. And it's only, I would say, because he lives and breathes it all day, every day. And hip hop was not very popular then at all. Right. And so I, you know, what we did was like, we took some risks on some no name startups doing revolutionary things at the time having a black headphone was like off the charts for people okay. <laughs> and we said i i mean you know you'd think like i thought they were hey, always black let's put it this way <laughs> yeah and so you know by taking a chance and and really getting to know and understand how people connect to content and content sometimes can be what they hear, what they see, what they feel, who they want to be, who they want to be like. Content comes in all different forms. And, right. you know, the best, one of the best learnings I had at Home Depot, or I'm sorry, at Best Buy was not just the way to operate big and at scale with hundreds and hundreds of vendors and billions of dollars and all kinds of tech integration and revolutionary things. It was like actually working with, you know, Beats as a very young company. Hmm. I had to help shape it. You know, we took a multi-year deal with them. We put the power of our marketing and our assets and our platform behind them. And then we really watched, no joke, Jimmy Iovine, Dre, Will I Am. Uh, you know, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, we supported every idea that they had. And what we did was we put these like small shops within a shop. We, 
most people don't remember this, but we put in what we call uh, like club beats. We built a small little club, put it in all the hot stores of Detroit, Miami, and West LA and all these other places. And literally like Will I Am would, you know, as if it was not planned, he'd come into the store and he'd start DJing or Justin Bieber, who was like a kid. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen our commercial we did with him and Ozzy Osbourne, but you should watch it. It's called 4G. Um, But anyhow, like we would just really connect the content and the products to the culture Mm. and the more you enable that, the more you bring those stories between people, whether it's some kid coming into West LA and all of a sudden he walks into a Best Buy and it looks like a club what? because we That's built cool. this club piece. That kid is wants to hang out there and be that cool kid. Like Yeah, you missed, you made Best Buy look cool. <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah, and I, I gotta that. tell you it was it was really fun to learn from Jimmy and Dre and learn from the growth of beats. And we also had like a ton of mistakes, mm. but in life you get a lot of mistakes. If you don't have mistakes, you don't know when you're going to win. Absolutely. Right. Because everything just looks like a good, you know, shiny trophy. And so we made lots of mistakes. Great example. You know, we saw black headphones were pretty cool. Hmm. And so the idea was, well, let's try red. It was like red. Oh my God. No, not red. Yes. Red. So we did red headphones, red headphones took off more than black. It was like, Ooh, there's pop of color. People like color. (laughs) People got like color. So we created, you know, orange, green, white, And then we started, you know, playing with over the ear, on the ear, in the ear. And what was really interesting is like you would think that everything you did would just become better, better, better. And then all of a sudden we would make a move on that. Like we did purple for Justin Bieber. I'll never forget this. We thought, okay, red, black, people are going crazy. We're just like blowing the shit out of beats. They go from $1 million in sales to like five. Okay. Think about five in a Best Buy store. It doesn't even move the needle at all. Not even one needle. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like 20. And all of a sudden a year later, it's like 40 and then 40 goes to 80, 80 goes to 200, 200 goes, you know what I mean? And so that hockey stick, it's all the work. I learned all the work between day zero and about the fourth or fifth year, you well, set the foundation for the future. Yeah. And that's really important. What for was the time when, when you then joined them? You know, obviously you were their uh, global chief marketing officer, right? Or what was the exact title in, in Beats? Monster? Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, Monster, so, right? Um, yeah, so. so when I, after several years at Best Buy, you know, and I had done the big, big thing for so many times in so many years, what I really loved, I was always the innovator and the entrepreneur inside these mm-hmm. companies, right? The builder the and whatever. <laughs> yeah. The entrepreneur. And what I really wanted to do was go a lot deeper into digital. And I wanted to really 
own a whole brand because now I had all the parts and pieces that I had intentionally built in my career, how to connect with consumers, the consumer tech, the digital, the creative, the content, the commerce. And I wanted to be able to put that all together and really lead from a digital commerce and a digital perspective Mm -hmm. from a brand versus leading from what I would just say is a more traditional brand where digital sometimes is last thought, afterthought, or future thought. And so I took off from Best Buy and I had spent all these years, you know, intimately knowing and building on the Beats side and Beats and Monster. Monster was, you know, the primary brand behind it. Mm -hmm. Beats was more of the front face and the manufacturer. And so I came out to California be a part of what was you know web 2 and the digital revolution and do it with a really cool brand that i could keep growing and yeah so it was fun that kind of started my track as uh really starting with brands that were more in the like one two million dollar space at the time beast was a lot bigger because we gave it the boost that needed it Buy, you know. Right. So it's really best buy in a sense who build it or help build them, right? That's a, it's a yeah. good story. Got it. Makes yeah. Sense. Well, that tees yeah. up nicely so, to Obsesh, which obviously was sort yes. of uh, what I can see then your next big idea. So let's talk about Obsesh. First of all, let's make sure everyone understands how to spell it. That's O B S E S H dot com is also the website. Um, that's right. Again, it says it's a peer-to-peer sports marketplace uh, connecting with the best athletes in the world for coaching and training, etc. And and I've had a look. I've been playing around with it, and there's some really cool stuff. It's really across all the different sports I can think of, from wrestling to you know American football, ice hockey, field yeah. hockey. Of course, volleyball is in there. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really and, and even esports. I saw some esports athletes uh, posting things. So absolutely, yeah. So tell us a bit about you know we've now spent you know good time on your career where you came from. How does that all come together? And you know, where did the idea of obsession came from? Um, you know, was it you? Was it your co-founder? Uh, or the two of you sitting there having a drink somewhere? And <laughs> tell us how did it come about? And, and yeah. of course, then we go into where you are now. Right, two women walk in a bar in Berlin, and we come out with obsession. <laughs> uh, that is true, uh, or that's the story? No, no, that's no. not true. Uh, <laughs> okay, but yes, we've we've. My co-founder and I have been in bars in Berlin. That okay. is true. Right. Um, Good enough. So, yeah. So my co-founder, Jalen, uh, I met her originally at Beats uh, okay. when Beats was very young. So I was at Best Buy. She was uh, working with Beats, uh, mm-hmm. you know, direct. And so we've known each other for a long time. I think if I go back to the genesis of, like, obsession, you know, for everybody here, Again, translating across cultures, and I know, you know, I might uh, speak a little fast sometimes, but obsession stands for obsessions. So right. think of your sports obsessions. What do you love? What are you passionate about? Right. What do you want to do? Um, and so Obsesh is the leading digital sports platform uh, for, you know, we've got uh, NIL here. We talked a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. And the amateur athletes, the niche athletes, the 
what I call the 99% who are not, you know, whether they're not making a lot of money, like mm-hmm. myself being in that position or these Olympians who don't yeah. have this support. We really started out, you know, building a digital sports platform where we can connect athletes and their fans together. Again, bring those stories, bring that magic there, mm-hmm. help athletes get film analysis, help them, you know, the young aspiring ones be part of the sports cultural moment of what was it like doing that flip in the end zone when you caught the touchdown, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I saw this opportunity and this timing again, where consumers really wanted the athletes and athletes really needed a way to make an income. And so by bringing together a business model that puts those two parties together, it makes it really simple mm-hmm. for an athlete to come in, set up their own shop, pick their products. We build plug and play products, whether it's like an appearance or coaching or mentoring or a virtual workout, whatever it is, we make it easy so that athletes don't have to be operators and distributors because they aren't and they could just focus on that experience and that story you know and that connecting with each other and so we started out about uh two years ago we came out of the top uh world sports accelerator called stadia right yeah, stadia I was say, you are you went through the yeah. sort of accelerator route right we did we did and we were like one of the top five last year and mm-hmm. Uh, got some great, you know, credibility, global rankings from like Sports Tech X, which is a European group, gave us top five global ranking. Mm-hmm. But we really found this opportunity and wanted to help athletes be their champion because the sports industry is not motivated to figure out how to solve for the 99% mm-hmm. to be able to make a financial future. The sports industry is motivated by teams, leagues, and the platforms and spaces that they've built to monetize the top 1% and to do that with like maximum power. And I just felt like there were a couple of things at play. Athletes are, are literally dying out of their sport because it's so much more expensive today to compete and train because the quality of the training is so much higher. The cost of competition sometimes. Hmm. If you're if you're a tennis player or a golfer, you're paying to play. <laughs> They're not paying you, right? right? And right. so I just saw this opportunity to build a model and build a technology that could scale and simplify and give athletes their own business to become their own entrepreneurs and be owners of their destination. Mm. And the way to do that was take this connection between what consumers and fans love, which is their favorite athletes and idols that they want to be like. And what athletes needed was a way to do what they're really good at, which is help inspire and help train and help teach others and mentor what they know. Mm. And so we started out, that way with that thesis that if we can create a technology that could connect athletes, you know, and fans, what are the products that would be 
the natural place. And so the natural place, when we worked with hundreds of athletes across all kinds of verticals, mm. was I want to mentor. I want to give back. I want to help that kid that can't be watching me on, you know, in the Olympics or can't come see me or can't get mentored mm -hmm. because of I can't afford that. We started with the thesis that if we could give every kid a giant network on their phone mm -hmm. of athletes to tap into and they would support the cost of what the athlete was looking to make to do that, then that would be a win-win. So we started out right. with the coaching marketplace as an easy, what I would say, first product. Mm -hmm. But again, just like web one and web two, we're moving into another digital era. And as the web gets more complicated and as products become more standardized, we saw an opportunity in working with the athletes, especially in the U.S. college market, the amateurs mm -hmm. who are younger, they're more digital savvy. Yeah. They want to build their brand. They know the value yeah. of like, I got to start my career right now, right here on day one. And we hear it all the time. Yeah. Even the top like female basketball player at Notre Dame, Olivia Miles, her very first word on day one of one of the top U.S. basketball programs was, I'm a freshman, I have three years to be the best athlete I can and set my career up build and brand. build my brand, yep. right? Mm -hmm. yep, so they're sense. smarter, they're more digital savvy. And so when NIL which is the name image likeness was deregulated, meaning any U.S. college athlete now, it seems crazy to even think this has been a, a rule, yeah. but any U.S. college athlete could now be in charge of their own name image and likeness and could now work to sell their brand or their marketability or create their own cool T-shirts or yeah. do coaching. We took that as an opportunity to really focus on helping and supporting these younger athletes just by the nature of how many there are. There's like 450,000 a year. Sorry, would you say that... Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, would you say without this the, the, this ruling, part of what you're going to do with Upsage might have not even been possible before? Or Yeah, I think it would have taken us a lot longer because when you look across all those 99%, like the skiers and the snowboarders and the surfers and the skaters and even the Olympians, yeah. many of those um, independent or niche athletes, they're so fragmented everywhere. Right. And a lot of them are solo athletes, meaning they don't compete with others. They mm -hmm. train alone, they compete alone, or they compete with the team for maybe 12 weeks. So I think it would have taken us a lot longer for sure. Yeah, so um, interesting timing, right? Looking back at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Marcus, you know, is we were looking at timing last year coming out of the accelerator. Mm -hmm. We already had a real in-depth understanding and knowledge just by the nature of our work and our careers around what was happening in sports. You know, the federal courts that were you know, trying to decide in the conferences that were panicked. Um, and so we started hustling two times faster, which right. I know that's hard to do in a startup because you're already going 100 miles an hour. Yep. But we started going two times faster on the bet 
that originally seven states would have deregulation. Right. What right. happened was everybody got it at the same time. And so we had a little bit of a head start, mm, um, but it's still very much in its nascent form today yeah. here, the market. Yeah. And one thing I, I love is how we started earlier, of course, is to me, it appears that, you know, you're you know, 30, literally about 30 years later here, that pain you felt um, as an athlete, as, you know, um, trying to make a living in a career, you've now turned that pain into your business. Uh, and, and I think that's really yeah. cool. I'm not sure mm. you ever thought of it that way, but uh, that definitely sounds to me that way, just listening to you here for the last hour. Um, yeah. I think it's been a 30 year pain, actually. I just didn't have the guts and there wasn't the right timing and the opportunity. You know, when you grow in your career and you're literally growing in your executiveness of your career, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things you're just not often willing to give up, like great vacations, True. long vacations, yeah. nice great paychecks. money, great bonuses, <laughs> great paychecks, all the things I do not get any longer today. But that yeah. being said, it was such a mission and such a passion. I thought to myself, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? There's nobody better hmm. like experienced or prepared to do it. Is it going to be easy? Hell no, mm -hmm. it's not. But I've never done anything easy. I've done things that make a difference and things that I'm very passionate about. And it, at the time, it wasn't even a big, hard decision. It was the three years or the five years before that where I was like, how can I help? Should I do it now? Oh, gosh, I think digital is going to get a little more accessible. Oh, I would watch things like Patreon, Airbnb. I, you know, I'm living in the West Coast and I'm living among the digital innovators of yeah, the world. Absolutely. And I just kept thinking to myself, why isn't somebody doing something about sports and athletes to create an athlete economy? Why isn't somebody doing it? And nobody was interested. And I thought, God damn it. If it's before I, you know, retire, before I stop my career, why do I need to be a CMO for somebody else's stuff anymore? I am going to do this. And if it's the last thing I do, which I hope it is, the <laughs> last thing I do, I hope it's going to change their future for every generation to come. That's well, my hope. Yeah, and it might not even be pitch. me that does it, you know? So obviously uh, so. you took that pitch on the road. Um, uh, and you said earlier, right in the accelerator, there was uh, Stadia ventures uh, you have a couple other illustrious yep. uh investors uh hbs alumni angels uh you mentioned earlier youtube founder uh, i think you raised a million maybe you raised some more by now but uh that's sort of at least what i could see yeah but a million sounded good at the time i just didn't want to say 1.2 1.3 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, so, exactly. so, you know, now, of course, you know, you started this, it was sort of early 2019, then pretty quickly after we have a little bit of COVID happening here around the world, uh, which in your, a lot of it. In what, yeah, exactly. Uh, now, <laughs> in your business, to some degree, that wasn't a bad thing, or maybe not even as much of a deterrent as it would have been if you were in a true physical world. Uh, so how did COVID affect you? Was it does it have a positive effect? Again, people are stuck at home. A lot more online is happening. You know, many yeah. you know online companies grew a lot during that period of time. That sort of how did that impact you guys? 
Yeah, I think you hit it on the head there. Uh, we're born a digital technology company. You know, when I'm talking to investors, when I'm talking to, you know, the world, we're talking, we're a digital sports platform, you know, that connects athletes with their fans, sponsors, communities, and supporters in, in all new ways. But we're a digital technology company. And so during COVID, you know, I mean, I think, listen, all of us have forgotten, but those first three, four months were just plain awful for everybody. Mm-hmm. We were in the accelerator and, you know, we figured it out in the accelerator in terms of like, how do we go through an accelerator that's traditionally in person? But it actually made us stronger because to your point, a couple of things happened. People had exponentially more time. They had access to Wi-Fi almost yeah. everywhere, you know, at least in our country. Uh, yeah. You can get it pretty much everywhere. So they had more time on their hands and they were uh, needing more relief. So there was just a lot more consumer behavior where, you know, no doubt five years from now, the same behavior, we'd still be at this level. But I think it got it really accelerated through COVID because of just the conditions. And so, you know, we can say streaming TV was never going to take over, but we all know it was, Mm. right? It just happened faster. We know digital is never going backwards. And I think because a lot of companies who relied on that physical, tactile, in-person experience now had to figure it out in a digital way in order to survive. Mm. I think it made a lot of people stronger. What it did in the sports industry was a little bit different. And it may have benefited us, although, you know, I have a lot of compassion for the athletes that all had their career stopped, that had the Olympics stopped twice. And a lot of them just didn't compete when it was like, it's on, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Okay, I'm done. Moved around. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so what happened was all the people that, you know, had been getting their, even their little salaries, a lot of those salaries came to an end because if you don't pay, you know, know, I mean, if you don't play, you don't get paid, right? And And so for us as a business, it forced us, while we were always a digital sports platform and technology, it forced us to relook at our products. And so we looked at our product in the, through the lens of virtual mm-hmm. and helping athletes adopt virtual. It seems natural now, but a year and a half ago, it really wasn't because they, you know, and so it, it made us stronger. It also, gave athletes more reason to connect with us and their friends were telling their friends and their friends and calling and coming on. So we grew by hundreds of athletes really fast. And what I'm really proud of is a lot of them were willing to put themselves out there and to get started. And, you know, so for us, it was, it wasn't a downfall. Um, Internet accelerated, digital experiences accelerated, the, you know, the trust that people built online Mm -hmm. accelerated, right? Because even in my pursuit of fundraising, 
I live in, you know, I live in Silicon Valley. Everybody was like, you got to come in the office. If you're not here, you don't matter. Mm. <laughs> and now it's like you, we all get time back. We see the wasted time we spent in cars and on trains and on planes. And we've been really fortunate to build relationships throughout the entire sports industry. As a matter of fact, we've, you know, uh, had conversations with like the city of London who has an aspiration to be the most walkable exercising active city. Mm -hmm. Okay. We probably would have never had that opportunity or to talk about Paris, you know, 2024. Um, and so I think it built trust. It accelerated our business. It also forced us to really think through the lens of all things digital. And now that we're coming back, the U S is, I think, much further behind. I spent the summer in Sweden mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I was speaking in Amsterdam. And so culturally, I feel like a lot of the world is a little bit further along than the U.S. We're still like the West Coast is still pretty uh, quiet, pretty closed down. In particular, San Francisco, people are not back to work. They're still uh-huh. working remote. Okay. And you know, whereas in New York, you're starting to see the hustle and bustle and it's kind of a hybrid. But I think what it did for us is it forced us to think about ourselves as a digital only company Mm -hmm. because we're a California company. We don't have an office anymore. We're willing to hire people from all over. So it Mm -hmm. increases our talent, increases our trust. It brings other challenges because I want to get all 500 athletes together all the time and we just can't you know i want to get my company together all the time so what we got in benefits as a digital company um are huge what we're challenged with is how do we create a hybrid environment and i'm just curious like you know i don't have the solution for that uh quite yet yeah, I think we're so, all looking for that one. I, I agree. You know, and I yeah, can share some yeah. of the stories of how exactly we shrunk into a more digital or, or online company yeah. versus uh, being physically in offices. But now, now I want mm. to touch on a couple of more things here. Um, one is the, uh, of course, the NFT world, which uh, you know you sort of also getting in. So let's you know we talk about mm-hmm. Web three here, um, mm-hmm. but also uh, the part about. Um, you know, when you when you bring these athletes in, right? It, you tr- help train them a bit, or you know, they just do their own thing, or or what is it? Sort of how you work. And I'd love to talk a bit about the monetization part because when I went in, I saw everything from five dollars for whatever you know, what sort of first trial mm-hmm. something to eighteen dollars and twenty dollars and fifty dollars. So I'm not sure whether there was. It depends on what it is you purchasing but it seems there was quite a few different price points um and of course you know if you can share that is left to understand a bit what you share then with the athletes you know what is it sort of what's the company cut etc so let's go in a bit of the nuts and bolts of the of the platform and how you guys make money together with the athletes yeah so that's a big piece of i think the advantage that we have is we really serve the athletes first And so we always let athletes set their own prices Mm -hmm. because we feel like they're the best uh, judge of their own value. Okay, so that's why you have all these different numbers flying around there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so the athletes set their own prices. Okay. And 
oftentimes, uh, we, you know, we see some athletes want to make themselves really accessible mm-hmm. because maybe they didn't have access, you know, to somebody at an affordable price. Mm-hmm. Other athletes, you know, have a combination. One product might be one price, another product might be another, and they might also, you know, have a high love for like really digging into the community, maybe the boys and girls club. And so they'll do things for free. So we let athletes set their own prices and whatever price an athlete sets, they take home a hundred percent of that. So if an athlete's charging 50 bucks, you know, they, they take home 50 bucks. We charge a commission on top of that whatever the athlete wants to take home, we charge a percentage on top of that. And that percentage of course is paid by the consumer or the sponsor or the supporter, but the athlete always sets a price, always takes home hundred percent of it. And then there's, we, we don't charge them for being on the platform oh, at all. Okay. And uh, so there's a commission fee we have found in our work uh, and you know, who knows business models are changing left and right. Uh, but we have found in our work, the fans and the supporters and the sponsors, they don't mind paying the commission fee because they want access to the athlete and they actually want to support the athlete. Mm -hmm. So whatever the athlete sets, they take home, uh, plain and simple. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let me just make sure I got that right. Um, So the price they're setting, so let's say it's $20 for the videos and the, the coaching they do. Um, that yep. stays with them. Let's say sponsors exactly. and other partners you bring in, you take a cut of that and then some goes to the asset. Is that, was that correct or? Uh, no. no, no. Every product that the athlete sells, they set their own price. Right. Correct. And they keep a hundred percent of that or you, you are taking and they a keep hundred percent of that. We take right. a commission on top of that. So if an athlete sets a price for $50, right. um, you know, we would take like 15% on top of that. Ah, right. So you, okay. So let's call it, you yeah. mark it up if that's the right word. Um, you yeah, we mark, mark it up. up it's top, uh, right. very similar to, yeah, very similar to like Airbnb. Yeah. You as a homeowner are going to set your price. Right. Airbnb is going to charge you a platform fee right. for the transaction, the support, okay. the, yeah. So we work the same way. Athletes. So we serve athletes and we also serve uh, what's called NIL collectives. And so collectives are uh, largely a U.S. Uh, booster club that supports the athletes for name, image, and likeness. Okay. And, um, and so we give the athletes full support. And I'll tell you the top five things that athletes want mm-hmm. is what we've made sure we solve in our platform. So biggest thing they want to do is they want to make money. So that, you know, we've already tackled that, right? They get to set their prices. They take home a hundred percent. We charge a commission fee on top of that. That is for the platform use, et cetera. They don't pay anything to be on the platform. Whereas on Airbnb, you as a host pay a couple percentage. Mm -hmm. So we don't charge the athletes anything. It doesn't matter if you're a sponsor or you're a fan. If you're buying a product or service from the athlete, whatever they have set, they set that commission is on top of that. Um, The second most important thing for them, uh, all the athletes is their personal branding. Mm -hmm. So the ability to build their reputation, to 
create commercial value for that, but also to live their true authentic, you know, self or being. Mm -hmm. And so we help athletes, we give them support, marketing, promotion, social media help. We help them guide and shape their personal branding. We don't try and change it. We try and take what they want to be their brand, what they want to stand for and try and help them through education and, you know, the services we give them, right. uh, like marketing, et cetera, to bring that to life. And, and so we've actually built what we call athlete Academy and that's an online digital course that all the athletes on Obsesh get for free mm-hmm. and they can learn about social media. They Love learn it. about Love it. all those things. Mm-hmm. So that personal branding is, you know, importance number two, that's, biggest problem they want to solve where they want support the third is around contracts Mm -hmm. so contracts could be anything from uh as a college athlete you know in the u.s it's important you have a contract when you're working with a sponsor because you want to stay compliant with our you know governing conferences called the ncaa and those contracts both sometimes just manage your as an athlete your intellectual property And, you you know, it helps you protect your brand. It helps you, um, instead of having to go file a trademark at the trademark office, you you know, you set out a smart contract that includes your design and your, you know, original art. And we take contracts and we make them plug and play for athletes so that they don't have to go hire attorneys. Mm -hmm. We have standard contracts for everything, for appearances, for camps, for, uh, you know, autograph signings, digital autographs. And the athletes have access to it for free or, or you have access to it for free. Yeah. So we give them standard contracts and because we put all of our products when they're transacted, it's, it's happening, you know, on blockchain, Mm -hmm. uh, those contracts stay attached to that and that becomes part of their records. Right. And it's all very transparent. So we give them standard contracts and let's say you're an athlete and you're like, okay, for my appearances, I want to sign autographs for two hours, but I'm not going to sign these things I'm not going to write on somebody's arm or I'm only going to sign a basketball, whatever it is, or I'll be there on Friday night. They can customize the standard contracts, but what Canva has done for designers, we've done for athletes on Obsesh. We've made everything like totally simple, plug and play, pick up the contract. You want to add an extra line, add a line, you know? Um, And then the fourth thing is social media. Mm-hmm. It's such a big part of the digital, you know, digital savvy uh, young athletes and yeah. fans, and a lot of athletes, even some of the people that you're talking about in the pros, they just they're overwhelmed by social media. Right. Uh, they're, you know, they don't always have the time. So our team gives them the support. You can send a bunch of content to us. You're, you know, you have like a platform coach, if you will, that platform coach manages a portfolio of athletes they get to know and they help you do it all. And then the other thing is in the U.S. is, uh, you know, what they really care about is the new name image likeness rules. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we help them navigate that. 
by being making sure everything they do, we understand what your school wants, what they don't want, right. trademarks and branding, and help them navigate that. Well, I have to admit, I'm glad we went through this here, the, 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 these five points, because I have to admit that is not what I, when I looked through the platform, I, what I saw. So, the, you know, the impression yeah. was more, it yeah. is the coaching and some of those things which we talked about earlier, but um, you're really going much deeper. And, and like you said, you know, from helping athletes with a branding contract, social media, and, yeah. and of course, NIL yep. rules, I guess. Um, there is a ton of services. Uh, so if I'm an athlete, that's definitely the place I would want to check it out. I love that. Um, very cool. Yeah, and that's what very athletes powerful. love about us is we're not just technology. We're humanizing the stuff they do and making it easy for them. Nice, nice. And you leave a lot of money for them there. So that's, uh, of course, uh, because I was looking, I was funny enough, I was just uh, not sure how much you saw that Twitch just changed the policy in terms of how much money they take off the streamers um they went from mm -hmm. uh, there was previously to a 50 50 now versus let's say if you take facebook they take uh it's 70 to the uh, to the creator and 32 to facebook so uh so youtube um so that, there is a huge difference again in in the, in this right and and i know there's a big outcry and i'm certain it once one way or the other twitch will lose um you know some of those content creators and Clearly, yeah. in yeah. the in the you know these are different type of content creators than what you're necessarily talking about. You're talking about more the athlete here, but you know there are similarities with you know with when you were streaming. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's all yeah. uh, this is all as a blend now in many ways, uh, especially if you look at yeah. esports and gaming again. You know, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, so I, I like that. It's that's uh, that's a really cool part of it. Um, now. Maybe just to wrap it up here, it, uh, you know, so how many assets you have currently on the platform? Um, you know, what, what is it sort of if anything you can share, you know, the growth of the company in terms of um, revenue or others or whatever are the, your KPIs you're measuring and, and where you're heading with it? And, you know, before we sort of start to wrap it up here. Yeah, it's uh, we're on high growth. You know, we're still an early stage company. I mean, when you look at NIL, now, our vision is to be the leading digital sports platform for, you know, NIL mm -hmm. in particular. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's and a so, massive space. Yeah, we're we're in uh, heavy growth mode because we're 13 months into the deregulation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where these college athletes, these student athletes, can now start to monetize, and it's still so nascent. I mean, I think probably last year. There's no hard factor figure uh, that anybody has, but I would say probably about 10 or 15% of the athlete market at college in the U.S. participated to some level right. in being able to monetize their name, image, likeness. I would expect this year at least another 25 to 40% because okay. just like anything, you get more comfortable. And so we're in heavy growth mode. Heavy growth mode for us is making sure we got the right products that these athletes can like pick up and not get overwhelmed with. You know, they can just pick it up, put it in their shop, start to sell it and learn from it. And then so the onboarding of athletes, uh, the new athletes, we continue to grow probably 25 to 28 percent every quarter in the athletes. Right. And you know, our biggest challenge right now from a success standpoint is how do we scale thousands at a time? Right. <laughs> we're not we're not yet there. Right. 
Um, and so that takes a whole level, uh, a whole other level of, you know, automation of training. We're automated for our onboarding, but not automated fully in the training. And the more you train these athletes to be creators, Mm -hmm. the faster they're going to learn, you know, and that inspires others. So we're, we're off to a really great start. What I really like is we've got great um, brand reputation as Obsesh. Mm-hmm. We have strong trust. A lot of the athletes refer other athletes. And now we really have found our sweet spot as a solution for some of the universities and, you know, the collectives that serve the athletes. So we're, yeah, we're doing well. Plenty it's of strong. Right ahead of there. It's keeping me up every night. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, let, I think we, earlier we, we were meant to talk about NFTs, and we kind of skipped that a bit. So sure. let, let's go back to that for a second here. Um, so you are launching mm-hmm. an NFT marketplace, which, again, sounds very natural. Um, again, what the mm-hmm. content they're creating and or other you know images, I think, build around it. But you know, NFT is not an NFT. To, you know, It's not the same thing everywhere. I'm assuming you're not building the next NBA top shot right now so what exactly is your nfts are all about um and sort of explain that a little bit yeah so you know nfts i think for a lot of people is a very um abstract thing like what the heck is it right right and you know when we think about nfts and we think about uh blockchain it, it comes down to two things. It comes down to the decentralization of both your content and your assets, but mm-hmm. doing that in a way that you can maintain the ownership and maintain transparency and control Great. of that, right? Yep. So when we look at that and we really stepped back, you're right. It was not about creating another boring ape or another top shot trading card. Mm-hmm. It was really about, being able to have fans, sponsors, supporters engage with athletes in all new ways, but using NFTs more as a utility mm-hmm. where that NFT becomes, you know, a secure digital asset because we're just continuing to move into more and more content, more and more digital assets, more and more contracts. And how do you manage the digitization of all those assets? Mm -hmm. And so we're using NFTs uh, in some pretty everyday uses or utility cases. So as an example, if you want to set up a membership community and charge your members on a monthly basis or an annual basis, and maybe you're going to drop them some exclusive content or even give them a T-shirt or whatever, we're tokenizing those membership passes as an NFT. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Right? It's a non fungible token, which means, you know, that asset's going to live and be recorded and ledgered in a very different way. Right. Now, you can also like create a really cool, you know, we've got some athletes that are working on like more digital art, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a whole series of, we got a college athlete. He's got a great brand. It's called Battle Island. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's printed all these T-shirts. Well, yeah. he can sell those T-shirts in the marketplace. Um, but he could also sell the digital twin of that T-shirt. Yeah, got it. Right? 
And so what we're doing is we're using the blockchain and NFTs as a way to really safely secure, authenticate, and manage uh, products so that you can, uh, I mean, you can manage those digital assets from here to the future. And it's really hard. I love that. You know, uh, here's, so, a, here's a really crazy a, a thought or an idea, and maybe you've even thought of it already. Um, we were working on a project was called um, Before There Were Pros, which was footage mm, of everyone cool. of Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, yes. um, LeBron yeah. James, and, and others. I mean, you know, when and this, yeah. this is footage of them playing high school basketball and or college basketball, depending on what they were playing at the time. Perfect use case. Yeah. Um, yep. Now, okay, that footage obviously now is monetized to the to the cows, but you know, this is old. You know, thirty years ago again, where some of those rights weren't exactly right. that way, uh, and the asset wouldn't have that own right to it necessarily. But we had footage of him in of interviews of him of you know him training, etc. And if he trains in his in his backyard, that's his footage, um, right? Or if he gives tips exactly. of what he was doing. Exactly. Now you wrap that around yeah. an NFT, it might be only worth whatever, 10 bucks right now. Once he becomes a pro right. and is potentially the next big superstar NBA player, that thing could be $100,000 worth, right? So, uh, you know, those are, I think that's, a, again, another You're amazing hit, use case for you. Right? You've hit it right on the head. You know, yeah. we're living right now. And right now, you know, we're at the beginning of Web3. Every single one of these athletes, to your point, if LeBron James looked back 30 years, you know, or he was just starting now, Correct. would they own and manage their content, their assets, Definitely. their yeah. contracts, their royalty, their rights, you know, their intellectual property different? Correct. I got to yeah. believe the answer is yes. Yeah, and that's how we're helping them. That's right. what makes us different. We're not yeah. just like, a marketplace that's like connecting people. We support the athlete. We're helping the athlete build the future financially from, you know, that's why we say we help them maximize, you know, and manage their revenue and their property. Well, and that's a yep. good with NFTs. Exactly. I mean, you know, it depends on how the contract is set up. He, he has future earnings there forever. Uh, even if that NFT yes. is sold and the uh, fan, whoever, or the, yeah. the supporter who bought it, uh, at the time, if he still sells it and as the value grows, if he keeps his little 10% mm -hmm. or whatever he has it built into it, um, there are, you know, yep. revenue opportunities down the line. And, and that's another one, which Jeez. I was listening to what you were saying. The fan part is so important too, right? Uh, and fans want to be part of that ecosystem, right? I think your focus obviously came very much from athletes who are not making money. Mm -hmm. Think of it, again, yep. if you think about it from the fan side, Fans never make money with their passion, right? And and this whole concept of <laughs> play, play to earn, or or which is really a big thing, of course, in the gaming industry now, where it's saying, look, I'm playing all the, you know hours mm. and hours of this game, but all I'm doing is paying for things, which is great for the developer and the companies who create these games. But it's you know what is it for me? Yeah, that's you know? web too. <laughs> correct, correct. You know, and so I think yeah. there again, you know, it's there eyeballs. is another angle to it that uh, even the fans eventually with an nft of course could earn something you know as the acid they support it and they love watching when they played high school or college or whatever level um you know how they grew and then one day maybe they become an olympian a gold medal winner or you know nba star 
Uh, I think there's interesting links there. So, yeah, I, lo I love what you guys are building there. It's uh, it's very cool, and we could probably spend hours more talking about it. Uh, but we do have to yeah. be a bit sensitive on time and, uh, you know, uh, to for our listeners here. So let, let's start kind of wrapping it up. And, and I, you know, maybe just to um, finish it off, you, you've, I, I saw another one where you became a founding member of something called Chief, which is, again, I think it's the, think tank uh, to empower women in 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 business or in in in, in leadership roles so just just you know talk a bit about Absolutely. it some of the other things you do outside of course your, your own company yeah i mean I, i've uh over my career i think in the early days of my career i was just trying to figure out what the hell is my career right outside mm -hmm. of an athlete and so i spent a lot of time what i say floating down the river and just kind of like going with it and figuring it out and but over the last i would say in particular maybe five six seven years once you accomplish certain things and you check those things off in your mind i really started thinking about you know what's the impact that i want to have um and i've always been a big fan of like empowering women empowering you know, people that want to achieve more and grow higher and do more things and do the things that they thought were impossible. Mm -hmm. I've always been that way as a leader. But I would say over the last five, six years, in particular, I think it really sort of hit me uh, with the Me Too movement in the U.S. in particular, right. where uh, I just said to myself, gosh, if I don't stand up, and talk about, you know, working with women, supporting women. I've always been a supporter of women, no doubt about it. But if I don't do it in a more intentional, outwardly public way, what message am I sending to, you know, that college athlete who's unclear on how she's going to have a place in the world off the softball field? And so I just started uh, intentionally putting more energy out there, you know, outward instead of just in my head and to my teams, I started putting it out there in, in the world by saying, um, you know, as an example with investors, I ask them point blank, do you have any women in your portfolio? If the answer is no, hmm. you know what I mean? Like that's well, not somebody not? I'm going to support because, right. because you're getting an opportunity to invest in this company as much as I'm getting an opportunity to have your capital in this company. Right. And so I started really putting that out there. And in particular, uh, there is a growing network of women and, you know, women are great community builders together. And so chief is a good example of that I was invited in to be part of that women's network. Uh, it is a great big pool of women from all walks of life doing all kinds of really cool things. And it's almost like LinkedIn, if LinkedIn had a real community and it wasn't just a bunch of messaging and posting, but Chief has a real, uh, you know, anything that gets big and is owned by Microsoft. I mean, listen, I worked for a company that was bought by them. It just kind of gets yeah. sucked into the world, you know? Yeah. Um, but Chief in particular, you know, I really felt they, their mission was to empower women and connect women for real stories and real conversations. And so I joined, uh, I was asked to join chief. I do that. I did that. We meet every month. We talk all together. It's really awesome. 
even as a, you know, an executive or a startup founder or a very successful, you know, in any right woman to be putting yourself out there and helping other women. So yeah. I find it to be an awesome forum for that. Uh, absolutely. And, it sounds uh, a bit like White PO. Uh, I'm a member of White PO and I've been a member of for eight, yep. for decades. And uh, it's again, yeah. it's a lot of the, yeah. let's call it yep. the young president organization. The word young is always with it. Exactly. You know, uh, when you, you, <laughs> I was young when I joined him. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it's similar, right? Exactly. It's CEOs and entrepreneurs around the world um, yeah. coming together yep. and yep. you learn from each other. And it sounds a bit like that's what Chief yeah. is, is with, uh, with the particular focus on women. Cool. Yeah, it is. And I also uh, have, you know, a heavy interest because I'm a, you know, queer woman uh, with a wife of 13 years. I have a, you know, I have a great interest, especially in sports and in community to also take a larger role in helping other people of you know, now we're living in a world where sometimes I'm even confused with all the genders. I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? But yeah. I just, uh, you know, it's hard to throw a gay woman or a gay man off. But literally, we, you know, it's just a new and different time. And so I just think we have, you know, I have an obligation now to intentionally bring people forward, empower them, talk about it and be a part of you know, the voices that stand up and say, hey, listen, yes, all lives matter. Gay lives matter. Sports matter. Women in sports matters. Women matter. Everybody matters. Okay. And so I've just taken a larger role in that. Yeah. Wow. With all my own power voice. to you. And I do hope that our conversation here and, of course, the podcast we just did uh, will help with this and, and will spread that message. Uh, and that was sort of actually one of my last questions here is, though, Obviously, at the moment, it, it appears very U.S. centric and it looks like you've got plenty of work to do there, especially in the college space opening up. Uh, but what mm -hmm. is, are there? Are you already doing certain things around the world, maybe in the English speaking part of the world? Like you mentioned earlier, you did some, you know, you were talking to the, the London city, et cetera. Or is that all, is that part of the sort of future roadmap? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, most athletes, well, we have right now, we're just exponentially growing on U.S. soil, in particular yeah. with the college scene. Right. So it's hard when you have a small company, you know, to spread yourself. I mean, we're already spread pretty thin. I'm so sure yes. uh, as, that, as that goes, uh, you know, listen, we see ourselves as a global sports platform. The challenge right now is exponentially we've got so much demand on the U.S. Uh, but I would say more so on our um, – pros so a lot of the olympians a lot of the pro players that we have on the mm -hmm. platform mm -hmm. um and we've got quite a bit you know we've got paralympians um right. we've got just about everybody and they all are very much global citizens mm -hmm. i mean it's no secret that you know men's soccer players here go play in other markets women's WNBA player go you know, they yeah. go play in five different markets. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing I would like more than to like be able to put a presence in every single one of these markets because sports is a gateway for, for life, right. For passion, for life, for content, for culture, for community. And so for that, we're definitely a global company and, uh, but it's going to take us a little bit of time just to stay focused, keep executing here, 
intentionally go expand in other markets. But right now we get just the halo impact of athletes are everywhere. And I think it's really cool for fans and for even supporters and sponsors to be able to come on to Obsesh and see athletes in all places and spaces of the world, you know, that's yeah. that's also important. Well, so for we, your audience, exactly. you're an athlete, come on. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Uh, so how would they reach out to you? What's the best way? Is just go to the website? Is there a way then to connect? Or is there another, is there an email? Or what is, what's the perfect way to reach you? Yeah, I think uh, the perfect way to reach me is uh, either by LinkedIn. I'm Tracy Benson. And if you just look up Obsesh, O-B-S-E-S-H, or you can email me at Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, at obsesh.com. If you're an athlete and you're an athlete that's looking to you know, be your entrepreneur and get on our platform and get the support and services and everything else we talked about, send an email to athletes at obsesh.com or follow us at Obsesh Nation on Instagram or any other channel that, you know, is in your market. Perfect. That's, uh, you know, and we'll make sure that is uh, well spelled out in the, uh, in our, in our podcast. We'll, you know, we'll, so people will find you there. Uh, Tracy, this awesome. was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for sharing all the stories here and, and being so open about all the, the stuff you shared here. Uh, I think it was lots of amazing stories. I think there's going to be, hopefully a lot of people going to be inspired by your own career paths uh, and have you've come, you know, full circle to some degree here. And of course, uh, you know, what you are currently building there. So all the power to you. And if you're ever starting to expand outside, let's say, especially, of course, here in Asia, you know, please uh, make sure you give me a call and let's see how we can help you here. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marcus. And uh, I hope your fans enjoy this and you'll have some new fans from the U.S. already. Definitely. Yeah. Appreciate it, Tracy. And have a good evening there. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot. Okay. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.